as a health tech company, say you've demonstrated product market fit, you've got some happy customers, you could almost say you've shown that everything kind of works. Now's the time for you to put the accelerator on a little bit, maybe. And as a founder, often in health tech, you're a clinical founder and you're someone who knows the problem to solve really well, you're probably going to need to extend out of your comfort zone a little bit and partner with people who do other things really well, like find quality leaders for your business or identify opportunities to expand beyond our shores here in Australia. So where do you start? How do you find and attract these quality executives to help you supercharge this journey? Well, with me today is Jonathan Jeffries, co-founder of Think and Grow, who help businesses grow through great people. In this episode, we talk about how Aussie health tech companies can expand globally, how to attract and find quality leadership talent to the team, and have a meaningful impact on scale. Collaboration starts with the conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. This is Talking Health Tech with me, Peter Birch, featuring content and community about technology in healthcare. With me today is Jonathan Jeffries from Think and Grow, who helps startups and pioneers compete globally in a world of rapid change and support Aussie founders through people, performance and connectivity. Hey, JJ, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Pete. Thanks for having me. Good to have you on the show, bud. Appreciate you making the time. Good to learn a bit more about what you're doing at Think and Grow and what keeps you busy. Tell, firstly, tell us about you and your background. Originally from the UK, I moved out here 15 years ago with a bag and not much else alongside me. I'm fortunate enough to now live on this side of the planet and call myself a citizen. For the last 15 years that I've been here, you know, really been playing in that people area and making sure that organizations get a better understanding of, you know, what it takes to get great people in general, and then breaking that problem down more meaningfully in the last decade, really with the fast growth tech space. So been really lucky to work with some amazing businesses globally, like the Stripes and the Squares and the Dropboxes and the Etsy's of, of years gone by in landing them out here, but then also some phenomenal businesses here in Australia and helping them set their strategy for global scale or, or growth in general. So be it a red bubble in Avato from, you know, days gone by here to some more modern day businesses. And in the last 12 months, we've been really lucky to really see the health tech and the med tech space in Australia kind of take a march up. So a lot of those businesses were incubated seven, eight years ago, and they're really coming to the fold now. And we're really lucky to work with what we, I guess, believe are some of the leading health and med tech businesses here in Australia and helping them not just scale their from a revenue side, but organize their business appropriately for global expansion and then in supporting them with that global expansion through either either people revenue or connectivity into the UK, the US, EU or Asia. In a nutshell, we've just been here to really support the tech space and what we're seeing coming across in the last few years is, is leaders in the health tech space really starting to make traction, not just locally, but globally and really start to move to that scale up phase rather than just sweating it out of that startup R&D sort of phase. So that's us. I'll get into health in a second, but just thinking about, you mentioned the fast paced tech side and, and the work you've done there and done that for quite a while. Am I right in thinking that landscape here in Australia, we've gained a lot of relevance here in Australia for those big tech companies. I think to, you know, seven, 10 years ago, even we very much felt like we were watching from a distance, being customers as Australia and, and continue to get support or sales or everything from overseas. Whereas these days, 
every big tech company and even, you know, the emerging ones have either a presence in Australia or they're starting to come from Australia as well. You've been watching that. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. You know, if you go back to the GFC and then you look at what happened at the GFC, there was sort of this telling tale where businesses like Atlassian had already started before that and grew through that. But then in that wave post GFC, we've now sort of seen these companies that are demonstrating great scale globally, like the world press, like the canvas of the world. But if you go back, there was sort of a really defining moment, I think, when big, large VCs were really looking at businesses in Australia. And probably seven, eight years ago now, we had like big investment rounds of like 200 to 300 million in bootstrap Aussie businesses in Campaign Monitor and SiteMinder. They really demonstrated there were high caliber companies being built out that could actually stand up on the global scale. You had the Atlassian, the Campaign Monitor, the SiteMinder, obviously all driven out of um you know, Sydney in this kind of more like SaaS model. And then out of Melbourne, you've already got the well-established, like what we now call unicorns in the sense of the Seeks and the car sales, the red bubbles, the Envatos in the marketplace world, which is a little bit to do with the kind of, you know, environments and the ecosystems and how they're culturally different, I think. But we have been successful and the world does look to Australian businesses as ones that are very good at building a business with very little money, proving product market fit, creating revenue lines. And if they're able to hold on through that difficult three to five year period, really able to stabilize their business successfully globally and and make a huge impact. And we're at this really nice point, I think, where we've had so many successful stories in the last five or six years that are sort of on the world stage that more and more VCs are now being created here. As we know, the funding's kind of gone from, say, 1 billion to 10 billion, probably even more than that now in the last few years. But what we're also seeing now is the businesses that are really kind of hitting their milestones around, say, SaaS metrics, which are really well-versed. We're seeing more US VCs look at more businesses. So in recent years, we saw big investment into like Optus Deploy, continued success in, you know, Culture Amp and a number of other different businesses. And I think it's probably med and health tech's turn actually to now start to see that trend. And we've got obviously good stories starting with Harrison AI, Prospection. There's been some other businesses in the past. We worked with like IK Health, which was previously sold to Telstra Health at the time, Smart Ward, which was sold into Datacom, which, you know, didn't really get out of its, you know, product market fit stage, but quickly moved into relative success because it was acquired immediately almost. It's a very different world in how you have to build a health and medtech business, but because our healthcare system is so strong and respected from a clinician viewpoint, it means that med and health tech businesses have got a stronghold anyway, because if we're able to get the technology, be it physical hardware or software into an Aussie health system, be it a Royal Children's Hospital or Ramsey Health or Sonic, depending on the type of business, then it is actually very easy to transition that product market fit normally into a new market because our health system is so highly regarded and our our clinicians are as well. So the work that you're doing with some of these health and med tech companies, how are you helping them out? So like a lot of our work starts with an alignment workshop. One of the biggest challenges of scaling in a business is creating a common language. And so the biggest challenge that we kind of go through is, are all the founders on the same page? Does that line up to what the board expect? And then how does the leadership feel about that? Now, the workshop methodology we use around getting alignment is kind of one of those things where some people have more comfort telling an external person they do internal person. And then we start to build and create that common language so we can actually get everyone aligned to global scale. Once we've got that alignment and work through that 
any changes required, we then move into what are the gaps that the business has. And some of those gaps can be solved through outsourced service providers, partners, you know, legal and governance, regulatory, IP, through to, you know, sorting out the share structure and ESOP. But the common pain points, especially in health med tech, tend to be the gap around how to articulate in a non-clinical way, product market fit that everyday users could understand. So creating that dialogue, that brand position that makes logical sense so that the product could be scaled from a sales viewpoint into new markets clearly. And so we try and get that language right, try and get that deck right, and then try and make sure that in discovering what that can look like overseas, potentially setting up meetings to kind of really do that user research testing to make sure that the product market fit is right. And then once we've got that and understood that, we can then start to build out the org in support of any expansion. And one of the common pain points of scaling globally is just getting HQ aligned and making sure everything in HQ is set well for expansion. We're in a new time zone. Who's going to support that? What does delivery look like if we're actually going to embed the product? How are we going to build that in rather than going and winning a deal and then having to back work that out? Our services are quite wide ranging in supporting that because every company has a different set of challenges any one time. Even at the earliest stage, given how increasingly accessible potential customers are globally, it's a very broad statement, but there's potential for an earlier stage startup who might be focused in Australia to all of a sudden potentially land a customer that might be outside of Australia. Then all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, oh, so we do stuff in Italy now. Cool. And then they kind of backwards integrate. Although it might be one single clinician that's utilizing a tool or is paid for a year or something, you know, it depends on what it is. But sometimes that can drive a globalization strategy before a company is ready. I can think of a number of companies that have kind of done that. That difference between going where you've just kind of magically landed up or being versus being strategic and saying, hey, this is our product and this is where we want to go. How do you see that split with your clients? Yeah. I mean, obviously the earlier you can kind of have a view that the business is going to be successful, got product market fit and go globally, the earlier you can prepare. I mean, some businesses can just stand alone and be very successful in a single market. And so identifying is there the size of market offering for where they want to get to as a collective is really important in that founder alignment conversation. Do we want to be a global business? Do we want to be a local business? Sometimes the ease in doing business overseas is really just around the language. So we often find, as we all know, it's easier to do business in the UK, the US, Canada, South Africa. You know, if you like, think about the old sort of Commonwealth and then add North America to it, what you're getting is very similar systems in some instances across health tech, in others less so, but at least the language is the same. I think it's really fascinating because sometimes a good lead that's coming in that seems like a great opportunity from a different market could be like a blessing in disguise, but it can be something that breaks a company if it's not dealt with the right way because everyone puts their eggs in one basket and actually then we lose head office focus and we drive down the wrong pathway. So really assessing that on its merits and whether it's too early is a problem. But then also like, which obviously everyone's challenged with today is smart people would be able to go back to their board and, and investors and actually assess, hey, should we do this? Shouldn't we? And if we did do this, do we need to, you know, hire in a new team to specialize on that and therefore deploy more capital earlier than we felt we had to, to make that deal worthwhile. And what we're seeing with some of the clients we're working with is they're going into markets that are less common, like Japan and Korea and Vietnam, where the health systems need the support. 
debates around AI and data insights and technologies like that, which are less common ground for a lot of the businesses that we've commonly come across before. It can work. And some of those great businesses I've mentioned before are doing that and being really successful, you know, in the same time zone as HQ, which makes doing business a lot easier in first instance as you uh, expand out. If you've been kicking around this industry a bit like me, or maybe even you're brand new to digital health, you've probably worked out that health tech is not an individual sport. Whatever you're trying to achieve, whether you're delivering healthcare for patients, or you're building health technology, or perhaps you're helping deploy solutions across health systems, you need a tribe, a community of like-minded individuals who just get it that if we're going to transform healthcare, then technology is going to play a huge part in it. So to learn and connect about health tech and level up your game, consider joining our THT Plus membership community. We've got options for every stage of growth, whether you're a solo individual or a startup or scale-up company. As an individual, you get access to our exclusive community forum, you get a warm intro to two other members from me each month, you get free access to our quarterly virtual summits and a bunch of other exclusive goodies. Companies can bring team members into the community, plus you get a presence on our website as a THT Plus member, you can post content like news events and jobs, and of course we love to showcase our members, so when you join as a company THT Plus member, you'll get to appear on this podcast with your very own episode. This podcast is made possible through the support of our members, it's literally the heart of everything we do, so consider joining as a THT Plus member, you can join anytime. Online, just go to talkinghealthtech.com slash THT plus. You mentioned going to, you know, having that good alignment with the board. The usual story plays out off from a founder or from the executive team who have expectations and budgets and targets that need to be met. The size of the Australian market is only so big. So I think if there are expectations of growth that go beyond the size of the total accessible, what the real total accessible market is in Australia, the logical step can be going outside of Australia. But um, yeah, having that that alignment early up in terms of that strategy with the board is important because that's the last thing you want is a surprise at a board meeting or something saying, hey, oh, by the way, we're in Japan now. That is important. So another conversation that we have a lot in the THT Plus community is we've got clinicians who are building a solution so at a quite early stage and they've got this thing that they want to build because they've they've felt a problem firsthand they see it every day they're like oh technology could help here but I can't build a, a solution myself so I want to find rather than just outsourcing it to a technology company I want to find a technical co-founder in your experience how do you recommend going about finding that right fit for a co-founder particularly for a clinician who might be looking for a technical co-founder it's a really interesting thing actually so I've been fortunate enough to support some of the accelerated programs within the health and med tech space over the last four or five years. And so what's really common that we see it is obviously the people at the cold face of this clinical world discover there is a series of problems either through their education and their training to become a doctor or when they're actually live. And that can be inpatient, that can be physical devices, whatever it may be. But commonly what I found on these accelerated programs is that they are coming from medicine or clinical backgrounds in that regard. And then they start with a concept and then there's such amazing tools out there here in Australia where they can build a prototype, if it's a physical device, just to mock up what it would look like and test it out. But then when it comes to physically building the, the software component of the technology at that stage or the hardware component and, and owning it, so from product development, either physical 
or software, they're quite often at this stage where they don't have any connectivity into true technologists. The biggest mistake I see is them hiring a mate of a mate or a mate themselves, where they just assume that they can do what they need. And quite often, you know, it can sort of work for the first three or four months just to start to talk the right language, but you're much better off taking the time to really assess the real need. Speak to some advisors or former founders that have scaled health or medtech businesses to work out what is the role of an early stage VP of Eng or co-founding technical founder so that you get it right firsthand rather than make a big mistake, put a lot of time and effort into something you think solved the problem, but ultimately blows up in your face a year or, or two years later where you realize you're really not at the pace you need to be to build that product out. And for me, um, we're in this beautiful position in Australia where there's a lot of great CTOs, VP of Engies, or product within software that were able to either give their time for free just to assess that over an hour or two or provide sounding board advice up front before you make that critical hire and make a mistake. And we're lucky in our model where we support founders by having an existing CTO we know in a similar space, come and help them through the interview process, so they have comfort that they're getting the capability skill set they need in on top of getting the human that works culturally well with them. Because it's quite a different culture coming from the clinical world, moving into the technology world, and then hiring someone from the technology world because of the styles and, and ways of doing business. Absolutely. Something that came to mind as you were talking then too, you know, as a founder, particularly a clinical founder, this is your baby, so to speak, but you need that technical co-founder to come along the journey with you. You know, often it involves giving up an inverted commas equity or packaging something that's much more than just here's your, here's your salary, obviously. So how have you found those types of dynamics gone as a founder or looking to find those co-founders? What do you typically expect to kind of share with it when it comes to the company? Yeah, it's and health and medtech's, you know, probably more challenging than many other spaces. And that is because the health and medtech space isn't always as straightforward, which is you might need to build a product for three or four years before you get regulatory approval to then get product market fit to then make revenue. The challenge is much in the lead up phase rather than the post phase. So what's the value of having that right person for that three to five years? And to be quite honest, just in general, people are no one wants to give up equity as a sort of starting point. But the reality is that if you need to build a product and it's a technology one and you need a CTR or a CPO or a co-founder that is technical or product orientated, without them, you will fail. And so at the first phase where we haven't got product market fit and we haven't got revenue, it's just a concept. Are they a co-founder and are they evenly spread? So let's say there's two co-founders. Is it 33%? Now there's three each. Or do we do a bias towards they're still majority and they just take 25? Knowing that the vehicle for investment that will come will start seeing you dilute 10% or 20% or in that range over the next few waves. And without that person, are they worth that amount to you? Quite often, it's never that amount. And where people get it wrong is they give very little. And so it's like 0.25% or 1% or 3%. And really finding that balance is something that's tough to do. It's not an easy conversation. But if they're high quality, have got the scar tissue of doing it before two or three times and you're bringing them in, a really good one will negotiate their value, you know, closer to what we'd probably see as 10% that early pre-product market fit stage. 
post-product market fit and at some sort of local or global scale, then it's normally, you know, between the naught and the 5%. Another role that I hear a lot of founders talking about hiring for is sales, interestingly, because it's the founder like, I, I don't like doing sales. I'm no good at sales. I need to find a salesperson to help me kind of scale this thing out. I've rarely seen someone come in at an early stage as a salesperson and then smashed it. It's the best salespeople are the founders and they don't sell. They just, they talk passionately about the problem to be solved and they might be rough around the edges and all that kind of stuff, but what they're doing comes through and that's genuine and that gets results. What do you find in terms of the effectiveness of, of hiring a sales team early? I agree with your sentiment, the founder is and should always be the best salesperson. You know, they're the sort of reason it exists and their product or their thinking around the product and how they sold for it tends to be the best. However, what we have found more specifically in health and med tech is they need someone that can actually set the meetings up for them to attend. And so it doesn't have to be a fully fledged salesperson. That might be an AE or an SDR. So sales development representative for those that are less familiar with the uh, SDR piece. Other ways to do it from a non-salesy viewpoint are getting the product marketing right, depending on the type of product. So obviously trying to create inbound through exhibitions and events and stands and trying to create that drag through brand presence. But then often founders are still trying to network and discover. The other role type we find that's commonly needed is that customer success and that customer support, really to see the follow through. Health tech and medtech businesses in trying to find that footprint in and around sales, there's got a two or three different ways you can do it. It's not always right hiring a sales director or a head of sales straight away. It's about brand presence. So product marketing, showcasing that exhibitions to get the brand presence up. In that instance, often it's the inbound lead that needs to be followed up. And that can be in the form of a customer success manager or an account exec. If it's the outbound side and appropriately positioned and trained up, it could be an SDR that you know, is really familiar with the hospital system or perhaps has been a doctor or nurse and can engage that audience and set meetings up for the founder to attend. But what we find is it's the administration around true sales funnel that's missing in the founder around that real diligence around process as opposed to their want to showcase their product. 100% agree with you on that one. I've seen many founders burn a lot of time and energy in trying to find ways to communicate to the board each month what the sales pipeline looks like and have that confidence. But if you've got that sales administrative function behind you as a founder in making sure you've got that information there to report confidently about the activities that you're performing out there on show, then that's a lot of value there. So that's probably a good balance. Yeah. And you're right. It's such a hard thing. Finding someone that you can get to sell your baby better than you is a really, really tough thing because normally it's almost like a lack of confidence, even though they're confident they've set up their own business, the founder lacks the confidence or almost like sales, a dirty word for them. And so it's kind of like that. I'm not a salesperson. Oh, I don't want to be, but you've built a beautiful product. So let's get you to talk about it. We're always selling whatever we do. That's always an interesting thing in itself. On the topic of the founders, though, something I hear quite a bit is investors might say they don't necessarily invest in the actual product or the company they're investing in the founder. What's your take on that approach? Yeah, I mean, quite often businesses have sort of, you know, raised on a very small, light touch pitch deck based on their presence as a human. I think the biggest challenge, if you reflect back on 
this segment is that it's, it's really hard for those people to show that energy and enthusiasm by nature. They'll tend to be less enthused around selling their vision in a manner that depicts what someone would just buy sort of like airware. And often they're trying to solve very complex problems with hardware, not just software. And that's actually quite hard to understand in many cases because the prototype isn't often the finished article. It can be more clumpy and lumpy. And unless you are a clinician yourself as an investor, you can't always understand the user case. You know, you can hear the graphs, you can hear all the stats that come out of the industry around it's a, a mesh for solving this, or it's a physical insertion that adds to another needle that does something else. That's very hard, especially at prototype stage where you can't really physically see it in full use. That in itself is a challenge. Software a little easier normally, but we obviously see the need to invest normally larger sums of money when it's a hardware product than we see in market traditionally in the fast growth tech space. So quite often we'd need to see a much bigger investment in a hardware technology business to get it up and running properly. We're talking then about getting that buy-in of the investors who, you know, to make sure they fully understand the product. I also see quite commonly the, when you start looking at the board for a company and typically after a raise, a board might consist of just representatives from companies that put a significant amount of money into the company. So now the board represents people who are a strong financial interest in the company going well, which can be all fine and well, but you know, as that continues, how the board kind of looks, it can really influence the tone from above, so to speak. What kind of importance do you place on the board in terms of picking the right people and founders, making sure they've got a good, like what's compromised there? Sometimes they're like, well, I don't really like this person, but they've got a lot of money. So I guess we'll give them a seat on the board. Like it's easy to say and hard to do. How have you seen it play out in practice? Oh, look, it's very common for people to put a lot of money into any business to sort of try and, you know, secure a board seat. The biggest challenge is what's their experience in really driving great health tech businesses globally, if that's the ambition, and making sure that there's independence on the board outside of just the BC investor seat, so that you're giving a much broader view on the output that the founders are trying to achieve in their business. Commonly, what we recommend is Looking at independence from a chairperson viewpoint, which is for us, we did a report a few years back with KPMG looking at the state of the market globally and really looking at the fabric of the best businesses that existed in our view of the world at that time. So it was like the Teslas, the Skyscanners of the world. And there was a common theme that had an independent chair. And in interviewing those independent chairs, what we found is that the biggest challenge in, in Australia is like when to put a real formal board structure in and why it's really important to create independence within a board structure. But then also being more mature in how we set the boards up. The first set of board doesn't necessarily be a formal board. It can be more like an advisory board that meets less regularly potentially, or up front, they know they're only going to be in that advisory board position for up to 12 months and maybe no longer because we need them for that sequence of building phase. And that's just about founders having more confidence with what they want and creating a structure that works for their business needs in time boxes almost. That makes a lot of sense too. Thinking then for organizations that are listening to this and 
think, oh, we might need to work with Think and Grow at some point. What stage do companies usually get in touch with you and start working with you? And, and what's typically the, the things that you find you're helping them out with the most? Yeah, so we're really lucky. Um, we get to see the market at different phases of growth. We're very happy to talk to founders early when they're still trying to work out what to do at sort of MC stage. And we've advised and supported businesses from these Accelerate programs, as I mentioned earlier. But really when the, the meat hits the bone, if you like, when they need, you know, structural support or critical hiring support, it can be early stage in that first critical need for a technical founder or a sales human. But what we're finding really is when the uh, business are hitting their straps, where we really come to, I guess, um, our core skill set in supporting. So it's typically when they're starting to hit really good revenue traction and looking to expand on a footprint of probably 10 to 30 people. And they're looking at expansion in terms of C-suite to support founders where they've got gaps. They're looking at expansion overseas where they're looking to get boots on the ground in different markets, or they're looking to go through that coaching and advisory phase of what it takes to get overseas. And that can come really any maturity level because it's about discovering what it will take and then planning and managing for it when it's in an advisory capacity. What we're seeing right now is the health and medtech market is in a strong position, as I mentioned earlier. We're really lucky to be doing some great executive hires in new markets. So, you know, MDs of America, MDs of the UK, Europe, Asia, and then core C-suite functions here, COO to support founder that way, chief of staff, CMO, CRO, or CCO. And occasionally the CFO, you know, they've reached that scale where it's probably a really good series A or closing on a really good series B. And I think as well too, it gives for those organizations at that size, having the recommendation up there to start working with groups that have done this before and that, you know, that have experience and expertise in helping get to that next level, it can provide confidence across the business in doing a partnership like that. So that makes a lot of sense. Lastly, then think about that for yourselves. What's going to be on the priority list? What can we look forward to seeing from Think and Grow over the next 6, 12, 24? Our annual salary guide, which we've been running for the last four years, comes out in a few weeks time. So looking really forward to bringing that education piece out so people can really start to benchmark how much is it going to cost me to start to build my business to the next level? We'll continue to work strongly and, and build out a better productization of, of the tools and the products that we have to market. We'll launch our new website on October the 1st. And in addition to that, at a similar time, we'll announce the team that we've built up in Asia. So we've got a team of four starting in the final quarter of the year, if you're running a calendar year. And that will see us, uh, you know, really expand our services into Singapore and the Southeast Asian market, which is really fantastic. We can't wait to uh, get up there and, and launch our business into that region. How cool. I think by the time this episode comes out, that means the salary guide will pretty much be out and things will start to be in full swing. So look, JJ, I'll put the details in the show notes of this episode and those links for people to check out the resources, see how they're on track with uh, salaries and what it might cost to invest moving forward, but also how to connect with the business and check out your listing on the Talking Health Tech directory and all that kind of stuff. Mate, I really appreciate you coming on the show and having a chat. We'll have to do it again soon. Thank you so much. Thanks. Before you go, just a reminder to jump over to our YouTube channel and subscribe and watch some episodes there. There are podcast episodes, summit sessions, and a bunch of other interesting content on our channel. You can just search Talking Health Tech in the YouTube app or click on the link in the show notes of your podcast player, and it should just take you straight there. Thank you. For more content and community about technology and healthcare, visit TalkingHealthTech.com.